Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 39 of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you're in the area and you are struggling with any of life's difficult issues and are looking for help, you can find out more about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. His name is Dr. Scott Miller, and he is the co-founder of the International Center of Clinical Excellence. Now, the ICCE is dedicated to promoting clinical excellence in the field of mental health. And so in this episode, we talk about the research into the effectiveness of therapy. We also talk about using outcome measures to increase that effectiveness, specifically the ORS, which is the outcome rating scale, and the SRS rating scale. And this is something that we use at our agency as well. And I really like it because I think it really helps us provide high quality care and know that we are being effective with our clients. So we're going to talk about that. And also what we also talk about is if you're seeking therapy, what questions do you need to ask and what do you need to look for in a therapist to know that you're going to get the help that you need? And I think this is uh, really important information and it was great to talk to Dr. Scott Miller about all these issues. And so I hope you guys enjoy it and I hope you guys get a lot of good, useful information out of this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and I have a great guest today. His name is Dr. Scott Miller, and he is the founder of the International Center of Clinical Excellence and really works with clinicians to help them have deliberate practice and do great work. So, Scott, you want to introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit more about you? Oh, I think you've done a really great job. For the last 35 years, I've worked in the field as a clinician and researcher, trying to understand what the research tells us about how we can improve our outcomes. And 
For the last 10 years, we've been focused on helping therapists measure their results and then use the resulting information to identify areas where they can improve via something called deliberate practice, which essentially is reflecting on your work, identifying small errors in the work that you've done, and then practicing to overcome those and improve those those small errors. Okay. So when what I'm kind of thinking about is when you're talking about outcomes to someone who's like listening to our podcast and they might be seeking therapy, what does outcomes mean and and what would someone look for in that? In the field of mental health, we have been dominated for most of its modern life by a focus on symptoms. That could be, I feel depressed, I drink too much, I'm not getting along with my partner. We measure symptoms and symptom reduction. The the problem with this entire approach has been that people's symptoms can disappear, but they don't feel any better. Their lives aren't improved. And so in the last decade and a half, there's been an increasing interest in well-being. How are things in my individual, my relational, and my social life, and uh, some other areas as well? And it turns out that when people's lives and well-being improve, that their symptoms either A, matter less to them, or B, they disappear. And so for me, when I talk about outcomes, I'm speaking specifically to therapist involvement with people, the result of which is improved sense of well-being and functioning in life. Okay, okay. And in some of your, I've seen some of your other videos that you have and and some of your other podcasts. And one of the things that you say about uh, therapy is that the research shows that it works. Can you talk a little bit about that? And Yeah. And you know, believe, it or, yeah, but believe it or not, if this is a relatively recent finding. In the 1950s, a psychologist by the name of Hans Eysenck caused quite a stir because he published a study that appeared to show that psychological care, the kind provided by therapists, actually not only didn't work, but might have made people worse. That galvanized the field and researchers, and in the decades that followed, they've established very solid empirical foundation for the practice of psychological care or psychotherapy or treatment. And that data shows convincingly that the average treated person, the person who gets care, is better off than 80% of people with similar problems who don't have the benefit of care. So there's very little question that what therapists do really does work and results in either symptom reduction of a significant degree or improved well-being. Okay, so really that's kind of telling people who are listening, go get help. Yeah, and this is actually the bigger problem the field faces, and I have some thoughts about that as well. For for the last 150 years that modern psychological treatments have been around there, we, 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 we really haven't attracted a following. Only 15% of the people who could benefit ever access psychological care. The numbers have stayed relatively flat, despite the hype you might hear about everybody going to therapy. The lifetime likelihood that somebody's going to seek out a talk therapist is, is stayed the same for a very long time. So there are people in treatment, those people tend to get better and get better sooner than people who try to, to try to do it on their own. So I think there are some things as a field that we need to do to expand 
our ability to connect with people and attract them. For example, one of the one of the main barriers to services is not what you usually hear about, that people are ashamed or there's a great deal of stigma associated with seeking care. It's that people worry about whether or not treatment is effective. And they don't question whether treatment's effective for somebody else. They're just not so sure that it's going to work for them. So I think, number one, we have to start measuring our results as therapists and talking with our clients about those results on an ongoing basis. Because if the treatment isn't helping you as an individual patient or client of somebody, well, that's 100% failure for you. And if the therapist were measuring, talking with you about the results from visit to visit, when there was a lack of response, the therapist could take that into account, alter the service, or augment the service in some way, maybe add services, and then perhaps even on occasion send you to somebody else who might be a better fit. Right. So you can get that kind of feedback. It's kind of shocking that that only only 50% of people are actually getting the help that they need. It seems like it seems I'm working in the field, so it seems that there's many more people, but obviously people are seeking me out to get help. And it's surprising that people don't see that it works, you know, that that's well, the reason. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, this is a, a, a common refrain I hear when I'm out speaking with therapists because frequently their caseloads are full. They have so many people, they may have a wait list, public agencies or certainly like that. And so when I make this comment, they say, oh my goodness, Scott, we couldn't take any more. We couldn't take possibly uh, any more people. But that's a little bit like saying there's no crisis in climate because the weather in your area is fine. We've got plenty of evidence elsewhere that there are problems with, with the climate. And in other areas of the planet, there's clear indication that we're just not reaching people. And that includes the United States. Those folks are making a proactive decision. No, I'm not going to talk to a therapist. Or they end up seeing, for example, their GP. The primary treatment you're going to get from a GP, unless the office has an integrated mental health provider, is likely to be a drug. Now, there's nothing wrong with a drug. The issue is that when you ask people, would they rather take a drug or talk with somebody about their problem? The vast majority, close to 80% say, I'd rather talk with somebody. So there's a disconnect between what people want and what they're given. Right. And I had read another article that you had written about some of the alternative kind of treatments, looking at people in, in the like mentalists and uh, psychics, and that that was actually increasing that people are actually going more to those services and that psychotherapy was actually dis- decreasing, which was also kind of shocking to me. Yes, the, the number of people that have been seeing a therapist alone for treatment services is, 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 is in decline as our therapist's incomes, as a matter of fact, which presents its own issues about attracting uh, new providers to the field as the current group of providers uh, gets old and gray and, and eventually retire. But people will often speak to somebody else about their concerns. And one of those provider groups is psychics and mentalists. And we've been looking at, well, what is it that those folks do that seems to be more attractive to people? And we think there are three things. The first thing is they've expanded the focus and explanation for people's concerns and problems beyond sort of the dominant way therapists typically explain people's problems, which were largely from a materialistic point of view. If you go see a therapist, Chances are they're going to locate your problem in your thinking, your behaving, your emotions, or your brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. 
many people, especially people in the recovery community, think that there are other factors in life that matter than those four dominant areas. For example, spirituality, connection with a greater power. And unless you're seeing somebody from that community, the chances are that's not going to be part of the focus. Right. And that just prevents a lot of people. It even creates suspicion, I think unnecessarily so, that the field of mental health may be hostile to people who have a strong spiritual or religious point of view. I think that can be really true. And I can kind of see how it could be perceived, especially in the recovery community. Sometimes therapists are seen in that in that kind of construct. And um, so they do. They, they go to other other options. That's right. That's right. Also, so you know, what do you? One of the things as I'm as I'm doing listening to your work and and using some of your tools like the uh, my outcomes, I've really been thinking a lot about what makes me effective as a therapist. And one of the things I keep coming back to is this is this relationship is kind of the 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 center of the whole thing. That's right. You have to feel a connection with the person you're working with. And that doesn't mean that just like in life, there can't be challenges and difficulties. But our own research shows that if you don't feel that connection and if you don't start to feel some progress sooner rather than later, that's probably a sign that whatever this particular therapist knows how to do and the therapist him or herself may not be the right one for you. And Sadly, right now, the way most people get a referral to a therapist is by is is through their family GP. Now, I say sadly, what I mean by that is, is that the choices are limited. And yet the provider that you work with is one of the best predictors of whether or not you'll be successful. So my bottom line point would be you probably want to, as much as possible, interview a couple of people and give one or more a shot. And most importantly, if it doesn't work out with one, that may say little about whether or not you're capable of recovery. It says a lot more about this relationship didn't work for you. That's interesting. You know, so kind of being able to, for people who are seeking therapy, to really actually take the time to find someone, and you you say feel, feel connected to, like that, um, feel safe with, would that be I suppose safe is 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 one one element. Uh, I think what you really need to to experience while you're with somebody is that they understand you, that they are focused on and willing to work on what you want to focus on and work on, and that the methods or the approach, the way they work with you, makes sense to you. It fits for you. And again, there's always going to be some adjustment when you first get together, but. That should happen sooner rather than later. And the longer it takes for that to happen and the longer it takes for progress to occur, what I mean is that you should start to have a sense that your well-being is improving within a month rather than six months to a year. That doesn't mean necessarily that you're all recovered and everything is fine. It, it does mean, however, you feel remoralized, hopeful, and you can see tangible changes in your life as a result of having gone. I would stay away if the treatment isn't working and you end up feeling blamed. That's a warning sign. In other words, if the cause of the treatment failure is solely attributed to you, that's a warning sign to me. And you probably need to think about whether or not someone else might be a better fit. 
interesting that you say that because when I started working in the field of addiction treatment, when someone wasn't successful in their recovery, a lot of often the refrain was, well, they just haven't hit bottom bottom yet. They just haven't had it bad enough yet. And I always felt like that didn't feel right to me. Like I'm like, I'm supposed to be providing help for them. And if they're not successful, I, there must be something that I'm, you know, how do I approach it differently? I didn't want to say, hey, obviously you don't want it bad enough because that didn't seem accurate to me. I mean, the people that were coming in to see me were desperate for help. Right. And I had much the same experience when I first started. And I'm uh, always pleased to hear when people say it didn't sit with me right as a provider. Certainly I bear some responsibility for whether or not this works out. And since I'm the person that's there to help, a greater mantle of responsibility rests on the therapist's shoulders uh, to to work harder, to figure out what can I do to keep somebody engaged and moving forward. Right. So it really sounds like what you're saying is is to people out there seeking help, if it doesn't feel right, if you don't feel you see progress pretty quickly, go find someone else because therapy does work. Right. You got to find the right person that fits for you. And interestingly enough, that's the same finding in medicine. It's just that we don't talk about it very often. And we have this view that somehow it's about the technology that people use, that if you get somebody with the right technology, the right treatment approach, but the treatment approach in and of itself contributes very little. So I say to people that it's not necessarily where the surgeon went to medical school, neither is it their scalpel. It's the scalpel in the hands of that dedicated practitioner that really makes a difference. Right. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that, that feels right to me in my experience in therapy and, and doing therapy that, yeah, and what I've seen and witnessed and, and working with others, it's, it seems to be like these therapists have kind of, um, these therapists that are really effective have this kind of ability to really connect somehow. I don't, they really are able to just, I don't know, get into the shoes of their clients and be there. And then their clients felt so understood that change starts to happen. That's what my experience kind of tells me or feels like. Sure. I I think much of that is borne out by the research that our team is doing and that people can read about either on my personal website at scottdmiller.com or on the ICCE, the International Center for Clinical Excellence website at iccexcellence.com. Those top performing therapists, which the field has just turned its attention to in the last decade, are able to connect with a broader and more diverse clientele. And as a result of that, engage the person in problem-solving efforts. And that doesn't mean they don't have ideas in their head. These top performers typically have a lot of ideas about how to be helpful because they're constantly examining where their practice falls short and then looking for ideas to fill those gaps. And the clients are the beneficiaries of that. Right. And that's kind of gets us on to the next uh, topic that I wanted to kind of talk to you about is the ORS and the SRS and using that tool in therapy. Can you kind of talk a little bit about about that and what those are? Because I have some questions about that too. Sure. Both of those are very short scales or measures that a clinician can administer, one at the beginning and one at the end of a service contact, to suss out whether the person they're working with is experiencing progress 
and whether the service they've just offered in the form of a treatment session or a group meeting, et cetera, actually felt like it was a good connection. The purpose of both of those tools is simply to find out from the consumer of the service whether or not there is room for improvement. Uh, if they haven't made progress since the last visit, and I'm measuring that at the beginning, that gives me a crucial opportunity to adjust what I'm doing. The physician you see uh, listens to your heart before they treat you. And if you've been treated, they're going to listen to your heart again the next time they meet at the beginning of that visit to see if their treatment actually worked. That's the idea of the outcome rating scale or ORS. The SRS really is measuring the quality of the connection because, hey, if you don't really like the person you're working with, if you find it uncomfortable or they don't understand you or they're not working out what you want, then the chances are you're going to leave and go on your own. It would be great if therapists use that particular scale to ask the clients for feedback and in the event that they're given it, that they adjust the service as much as possible to the client's needs. Right, so that they can actually, it's almost that a tool to really be able to see what's going on quickly and fast. That's right. Yeah, it's not perfect, of course. I mean, somebody could be untruthful when they fill out the scale, but I find that most of the people, the vast majority of people that come for help want help. As a result, they're willing to give you feedback uh, when it's not. If you ask, openly for that for that feedback. Right. And and one of the things that you emphasize a lot, especially in the training for these tools, is creating that culture of feedback, even negative feedback, and strongly encouraging it. And it seems that therapists that are effective tend to do this kind of naturally. They have they, how they come to it, they frequently can't say our own research now has looked very carefully at this. I think that a good analogy for a very effective therapist is they they function much like a tailor. When you go to the tailor, it doesn't do any good not to tell them that that the clothing they've just, they're they're fitting to your body pinches you or doesn't fit exactly right, or you don't like the style. it's, It's really important to say, well, no, it's too tight here. It needs to be let out there. And frankly, I don't like the size of the collars so that they can do something about it while the clothes are still being made. Uh, once the outfit is complete, it's a done deal. You've paid your bill and, and there's very little that can be done to undo it. So for me, at least, good therapists are looking for and trying to create an environment where the cons- customer can speak up. And if you think about it, that's just good business. Because if a consumer leaves the tailor shop feeling like, wow, look at these clothes, they're going to tell other people about the service. Look at how great these look. Other people are going to notice. And of course, that consumer is going to go back if they had a good experience when they need to. Right, right. So I haven't kind of gone in many different spaces here, but so tell me a little bit about the creation of this tool and how this tool kind of came to be. For personally, I've, I've never really worked in a, in a for-profit treatment center, never had a private practice to speak of. I, I've always worked in groups and groups that were aimed at working with people who were very different than I was. They grown up in uh, different circumstances. They came from different cultures. And we knew that the particular treatment approach that clinicians used didn't really 
affect the outcome that much. Although that's the main assumption. You go to see a physician, you assume the pill they're giving you is something that has been specifically researched and shown to help the problem you have. Well, in psychotherapy, they've tried that. They've tried researching various methods for various diagnoses, and it turns out they all work about equally well. So knowing and being trained in particular models doesn't necessarily tell you what's going to work for the individual person. If you combine that finding with my experience of working in agencies and settings where the people that I was encountering had lived very different lives than me, the challenge, it seemed, was to find a way to get close, to learn about them and to learn about them quick. I had great intentions. I just didn't have a practical method for for doing that. And so I started thinking about what do we know from the research? Well, we know that relationship is really an important factor. Maybe we ought to ask people for feedback about the relationship. Initially, we thought, oh, maybe we can just do that by a conversation. The problem with that is, is that sometimes we ask the questions, sometimes we don't. If we think it's good, why ask? Well, the reason to ask is because, of course, two people can disagree. And for a therapist who's seen five, six people a day, it's not always easy to recall the ones that you're connected with and the ones you're not, and to make solid judgments. So we developed and standardized a couple of scales that could be used to do both things, to measure both the experience of the relationship and then last but not least, the, uh, the outcomes. And we knew from the research literature as well with regard to the progress or outcomes of care that if a particular therapist was going to be helpful, then they should experience that benefit sooner rather than later. The longer it took to achieve an outcome, the greater likelihood that that relationship would end in either dropout or treatment failure. Okay, okay. So it kind of grew out of like this knowledge to like, What's working here? Why, why is this working? That, that and then my personal experience of noticing just how much I needed to learn in order to connect with people. Right. I grew up in a very specific part of the country in a, in a particular kind of family and culture. Our, our nation and the world is really diverse. I think it's ludicrous to assume that my experience and my understanding is the same as everyone else's experience. and yet. That is, in some ways, what's assumed by our field, which says that, well, if you have an alcohol problem or a depression problem, you're all the same. Right. Your individual differences don't matter. We're going to use this method to treat you no matter what. I mean, that that struck me as patently absurd, given the research. Yeah, that seems so true. And then a lot of times also as therapists, what I've also found is sometimes I think I'm doing great work with a client and then they don't come back. That's right. And, and the research about that says that about half of those who don't come back, you know, probably have made some progress. And the other half made no progress whatsoever. What are we saying here? We're saying that it's really important to find out what the consumer thinks. Right. And getting them to tell us is part of the big challenge. We, as a society, we go out to dinners quite a bit now, much more than when I was, was growing up. Going out to a fancy restaurant or even a restaurant at all was a fairly rare experience. I would say my experience at most restaurants, and when I talk to others, they have the same experience, or they're okay. It's not like they're great. And I'm shocked at how seldom somebody really approaches me in a way that makes me want to tell them how they could improve things. For me, mostly I get some kind of chit chat at the table. Was it okay? Was it good? Did it taste great? And of course, the 
the polite response is yes, even though you may be thinking, eh, you know, I'm not coming back. It doesn't have to be terrible. It's just that it wasn't great. If you really wanted to find out, if someone really wanted to find out your experience, they'd have to spend a little bit of time with you and make it worth your while to tell them how to improve it. Yeah, and, and I, I like that analogy. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about how what I like about the ORS and the SRS is that it feels like it, it puts a lot of power back into the client's hands to be able to really direct their treatment and know that they're getting quality care, right. that they're getting what they need and what they seek. And I really like, it seems to really empower these clients. Uh, that's also what I found in using it. Right. And I, I think a hundred years of professional medicine and then dealing with insurance companies and payers has, has basically forced most people to become passive participants. That's why they're called patients. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're going to sit around and wait uh, for the experts to decide what the treatment is going to be. And I, I don't like that point of view. I, I, I see, of course, people as consumers of a service, meaning that they are full participants in this exchange. They're exchanging their time and money or insurance benefits for the care that I provide. I have an obligation to them as someone in business uh, to provide the best service that I can. Definitely, definitely. I have another question too, because you talked you talked earlier about a client knowing pretty quickly if and seeing progress quickly in therapy and that they should see that. What about, you know, when I'm working in the addiction field, many of my clients, when they're in recovery, stay for a a long time, sometimes even up to two to three years as they kind of reorganize their life. Mm -hmm. How does this tool work with even like longer term clients? And once that, well, what I feel is like once that relationship is really established and they're making progress, how does this tool work with that, if that makes sense? So they've been here a long time. They've, we've been working together. How, how does that work? Well, in, in the field of psychotherapy, for those who, who, don't, who don't recall, there, there has been a, an historic distinction between so-called short and long-term therapies. And, you know, my, my response to this was always that, that this distinction made no sense whatsoever. And if you went and you needed heart surgery and the surgeon said, well, would you like the long surgery or the short one? They, they would look at you baffled. Right. So the length of treatment is, is unimportant. What matters is progress along the way. And that's why it's very important to see if there's progress in the beginning, because in the beginning, we can tell whether or not this is a good fit and whether or not this approach is, is the right one for this particular person. If a, a particular approach is helping someone, all of the data say that more care is better than less care. Now, how that care plays out over time is another, is another concern. Many people experience more significant changes in the beginning of a therapeutic contact. Same as when you go to see your dentist. You have a toothache. The, you're going to get a lot of relief very quickly. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. Now, what does the dentist do after the procedure is finished? Do they close the case and say, never come back because that's a sign that our treatment was successful? That's essentially what mental health has done. We've acted like surgeons of the mind, that we're going to cut out the offending part 
and then you should never have another mental health problem. Well, that, that's just not the way life is. It's not the way people are. It's not the way mental health concerns arise. So once you've had a procedure in a dentist's office, the truth is they're likely to remind you about flossing and brushing and then recommend that you come back every, every now and then for a checkup and a check-in. So for me, at least, the dose and intensity of services can begin to decline over time as the amount of change begins to decrease. Over time, it's going to take more and more effort to achieve just noticeable differences in your performance. That means you probably need to space out the contact. If you've been successful in the beginning, begin to space out the contact, more time in between to practice what your therapist is telling you you need to do to consolidate those gains. But do you need ongoing support? Absolutely. We're just talking about how intense it needs to be. And if you don't do that and you see your therapist every week for two years, that can give people the mistaken impression that A, change is harder than it is because I go every week and I don't seem to make much change. No, that's just the nature of how change happens. Change happens a lot in the beginning and then it takes a lot more effort to achieve a change over time. So we can begin having a discussion with a client about how much support is needed to keep them on track, full of hope that if they continue to exert effort, it will have rewards, and identifying the next achievable goals. And that kind of seems how it, it bears out in, in my work as well. And what I've done and at our agency, usually care is very intense in the beginning and uh, really make that, that change happen. And then it, it does kind of level off, but they keep that momentum going, maybe not at the same speed. Yeah. They're, they're moving and it is kind of a, I always say with clients, I mean, this is kind of where you have to kind of dig in at this point. It's, you don't get those immediate gains. You're kind of really having to earn those gains, if that makes sense. And it, That's right. And it Absolutely. was harder in some ways. You know, you don't get that immediate hope and like, oh my gosh, this feels great. And we're, you know. And you'll hear people, you'll hear people say, you know, oh gosh, I've hit the plateau, whether it's weight loss or weight training. Right. It's much easier to see the effects of aerobic exercise in the beginning. Yes, you work hard. And then suddenly you see that you can walk more, do the stairs more. You're in much better shape. But then bulking up and pushing your performance just a little bit more. Wow, that takes a lot more time. Now, do you need to see a personal trainer every day? Chances are that's going to make you feel pretty darn discouraged because you're just not going to see that much benefit from that. So you need to continue support and help, but probably spaced out strategically. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Scott, I want I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge. Well, I guess kind of at the end of my podcast, I'd like to ask, like someone out there is thinking about getting therapy or getting help, what would you tell them? I would say call up several therapists and talk to them a bit. Ask them if they work with people with your kind of, of issues and concerns. If a therapist won't speak to you, then I would cross them off the list. You're not asking them to spend an hour with you on the phone. Second thing I would say is make sure that before you've called, you're concise with your questions. Here's the issue I have. Is this something you deal with? Who would you recommend if not? Another thing I would ask is how do you know that, I, that if I'm making progress or not? And how do you adjust in the event that I'm not making progress? I would 
establish an appointment with one with one of those that that you connect with. Now, it's just like going on a date. When you if you were dating, you you wouldn't simply, or at least I I hope, marry the first person that you that you that you meet. You would give it some really careful consideration because this is an important decision. And don't get discouraged when it doesn't work out. Not your fault. Sometimes relationships don't work. That's just the nature of the beast. And I would give it another try. And many people have to try a couple of therapists before they find somebody that they're a good fit with. All therapists are not created equal. Yeah, that is so true. And and it's interesting because the, the clients that uh, sometimes clients do interview uh, me for therapy and, and they tell me I, I'm, I'm meeting several different therapists. Yeah. And when they do choose to stay with me, it seems and I don't have the data, but it seems that they do well. Yeah. And, and there's probably some correlation there, I would think. But I think that's great advice to people out there who are struggling, even though it's hard in probably the grips of some psychological pain, is to continue to ask for help and find the help that works for you. That's right. And just because I said what I said about general practitioner physicians, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to your family physician if that's the person you feel most comfortable speaking with. Uh, The same thing goes for your your religious leader. If, If there's somebody in your church that you feel an elder, a minister, that you can ask for help, then do that as well. Yeah, and that help is out there and that go, go get it and ask for it, even though it's hard. So Scott, I wanna, I wanna thank you so much for coming on. How can people find more out about you or connect with you if they would like? You know, the best way to reach me is through my personal website, which is scottdmiller.com. Scott, D is in Daniel, miller.com. And I respond to all of my emails. So if you send me an email, I'll reply. Sometimes it'll take me a day or two because I'm in transit somewhere. I spend a lot of time on the road teaching and training and doing research. But I will get back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. I will also link, uh, I'll have all those links in the show notes as well at the website at theaddictedmind.com. Great. And so it'll all be there. So once again, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 39. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help and I really appreciate it. Also, if you have any comments, please go to the blog at theaddictedmind.com and leave a comment about the episode. I'd love to hear what people are thinking and what they're getting out of listening to The Addicted Mind. So once again, until next week, have a wonderful day. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. 
I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.